Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. Uh, this is a conversation with Dino Cazares from Fear Factory. After an extended quiet period owing to the pandemic and various other events which we'll get into, uh, Fear Factory are releasing their new single, Disruptor, from their upcoming album, Aggression Continuum, this Friday, April 16th, 2021. So, here we marry up the history of the band and its link to Roadrunner Records, including some of the turbulence that the band has endured in more recent years. Now, Dino is incredibly articulate, and as such, I really thank him for offering his unique perspective on his relationship with Roadrunner. And for the same reason, uh, there's a lot of me paraphrasing and generalising certain events just to sort of support the conversation, to which Dino quite rightly steers me towards understanding the full context. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a few moments in this conversation of me looking like a proper knobhead. But, you know, I'm quite happy to look dumb in front of certain people in the interest of me learning something, right? But, you know, if there's anyone that I'm happy to receive an education from, it's Dino fucking Cazares. It's a very reasonable trade-off. So, enjoy this one. One, two, fuck shit up. How's everything going? Everything good? Dude, everything's cool, man. I've been, it's just been fucking hectic. I'm sure, I'm like, I, I'm in no position to say that to you, but it has been very hectic. <laughs> well, it's been very hectic for me too, because, you know, we're about to drop a single coming up on Friday. Yeah, man. It's been, and uh, so, it, 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 how does it feel like going out of like the last few years of um, kind of admin overheads and now you're sort of like, you're, you're at the runway now and you're about to hit the cycle. Does it feel really fucking relieving? Uh, very, very relieving. It's going to feel even better once we can get out there and tour. Fuck yeah, man. Fuck. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we're used to, you know, I'm used to putting a record out, you know, single, being on the road, you know, to promote the album, you know, and uh, right now it's kind of like, okay, we've got a record coming out. It's exciting, but then there's, a, there's not that going on the road aspect. You know what I mean? So, uh, but I'm excited as I possibly could get. Yeah, there's there's a weird cycle this time round, but I'm maybe maybe it's just because I'm um, I'm getting old, but like the the idea of having as much sort of admin overhead as you've had in the last two years, and just had that sort of like lifted off over the last six months or so, you know, all the the you know the certain matters that have been resolved, which I won't dwell on. It must have been it I must mean, just it must be like wait such a weight off my shoulders, dude. Fuck me. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, there's been a lot of hurdles that I've had to leap over just to get to here. You know what I mean? And it is, and it is like, you know, a weight's been lifted off my shoulder to finally get it out. And it's been five plus years or not a full six years, but it's been about five and a half years since there hasn't been any new music from the band Fear Factory. Yeah. So just to finally get it out. It's, it's extremely exciting. It's, it's a weight lifted off my shoulders and, people can finally hear the record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, right now the single, but you know, eventually you're going to be able to hear the record within a few months. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Is there, is there a date yet for the new album? I don't know if it's been out yet. Oh, it doesn't release the uh, information. So the dates and everything will be released this Friday. Perfect. All the information will believe. Yeah. It's going to be released this Friday. You're going to be able to go to fearfactory.com to do all the pre-orders, you know, all the vinyls and the cassettes. And the CDs, yeah, and the T-shirt bundles and all that stuff, and all the different color of vinyls. There's going to be plenty, plenty of them. You know what I mean? Um, and it's cool. It's cool to finally get it out. You're going to be able to go to fearfactory.com for all that stuff. Cool. I like the um, the selection of of, of um, reissue vinyls as well because it feels like 
and maybe it's just been the time it's been it feels like a reboot a completely breath a breath of fresh air everything's happening in a completely different new flavor it's going to be fucking you're going to be so productive because you're an incredibly productive person and to see sort of like the shackles be taken off you it's i'm just excited to see that that ball rolling at the speed it's going to yes and that was one of the good that was one of the good things about the covid the i call it the covid year right yeah or the covid years <laughs> um but that was one of the good things about you know that was that we were able to catch up on some stuff in other words you know we're re-releasing D manufacturer on vinyl for the first time ever in North America. Wow. You guys had it out there in the UK. You guys had it out there in Europe. Um, but we never had it out here in North America. So we're re-releasing the vinyl here with also some live bonus tracks from Ozfest 1996. So it's going to be a three vinyl. It's going to be three vinyls. The two vinyls, two vinyls will be the album. Mm-hmm. Then the, the third vinyl will be the live tracks. And it's great because you can really hear the band was on fire. 1996, demanufacture era, the band was just on fire. You can hear it in the live recordings. We didn't do very many touch-ups at all. We wanted to keep it as authentic as possible. And, uh, and yeah, I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, and uh, so that then also the record that we did in 2012, that came out 2012, was called The Industrialist. Yeah. Now, on that record, we didn't have a drummer, so we ended up using the drum program. Mm-hmm. So when that record first came out, a lot of people, a lot of our fans were disappointed that we didn't have a drummer and we used uh, the drum program. So now I had the opportunity and the time to go back and have our drummer, Mike Heller, who's been with us for the past 10 years, I had him go and retrack all the live drums for that record. Oh, awesome. So now, yeah, so now we're going to, re-release that you know on vinyl and everything um and it's going to be called re-industrialized it's kind of an inverted theme isn't it because faith factor is all about industrialization and you're retrofitting like an actual human element to it it's so weird it's so weird like you know we've been thinking about technology the whole time and the minute we we use technology we got backlash from it so it was kind of (laughs) weird so uh but it was cool that we got to do that. I, it definitely gave the album a fucking different feel, and it sounded yeah. really good, and we're really happy with it. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait for people to hear it. We, Of course, we added a couple, not a couple, but a few different things per song, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like different roles, different fills, sure. things like that. Uh, added a couple of different notes here and there just to spice it up a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah. I think the... Um... The next, I guess, the, is the new singer going to be revealed at any point, or is that still is that still outstanding? Uh, we just, I, I'm holding off on that. Okay, okay. I want to, I want to focus on the album, get the album out, get all that stuff out, uh, and then you know everything else will come will will come as uh, will come soon. I think yeah. it's on Twitter that um, I think it, you you're after an unknown or something. I was. I'm very excited for the prospect. Well, it's not that I'm it's not that I'm after an unknown. I'm saying I would give an unknown a shot. Ah, cool, right. You know what I mean? And I also said gender does not play a factor in my decision at all. Mm. So if it's a female, you know, male, whatever, if they can handle the position, they can handle the job, yep. I would be more than willing to hire them. But at the same time, there's a lot of things to consider. Now, if you hire an unknown who doesn't have any experience as far as touring, or nothing like that. Um, that could be that could be uh, not exactly great because you know they haven't been on the road, they mm. haven't tested their voice, 
singing months and months, you know, at a time. So there's, you know, obviously there's experience that's involved, right? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> we would want somebody who would have some sort of experience. I think it's exciting though, because if you if you look at like Fear Factory as a as how it elevated the genre, I think there's like there's ty- kind of like two camps. There's the in, the instrument the instrument time. What's the word? <laughs> instrument instrumentation. There we go. There's okay. that stuff which was which was you basically taking death metal kind of aesthetics and making it a lot more accessible and giving it a different vibe and then working with Reese to sort of really bring it into a different era. And then there's the stuff which uh, Burton contributed the, you know, the, the gruff to clean and, and everything around that. Since like in the last 30 years, no one's topped Fear Factory in terms of that instrumentation. I th- in fact, I think that kind of guitar playing has been pushed further out to the fringe. So I think Fear Factory is still like the, the, the cutting edge in that regard. But yeah. on the vocal side, we've had, obviously since say, let's say the early 90s we've had like grunge, we've had post-hardcore, we've had metalcore, we've had all these things happen. And it's kind of, it's kind of developed in isolation of, of, of Fear Factory. So I think when we come round to the new singer, it's going to be such an interesting injection of new flavor, which I think is really, I think like the ground in terms of the vocals is so fertile for development. And I think it's it should it's going to be really fucking cool. I think. Well, the, well, <clears throat> the weird thing about it is that if we get a male vocalist, right, mm-hmm. he's going to get compared to Burton left and right. Sure, he's going to be like he better sound like Burton. He better be an identical Burton. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just going to get. He's got a lot of shoes to fill, right? Yeah. Big shoes to fill. So, but if we get a female, there won't be no comparisons to Burton. You can't compare a female to that. Yeah. So. But if a female can sing all that stuff, you know, in her style and her way, she, the way she does it, mm-hmm. and stay true to the legacy that we've uh, that we've made for the past thirty years, and she could bring a whole new life to the band. Exactly. You know, you know so I, I'm I'm leaning either way. I, I'm I'm for whoever can handle the position, and mm-hmm. uh, anybody that you know who who obviously we're going to have to get them in a room, yeah. you know, bash it out, you know, rehearse. You know, see how they hold up live. See how they hold up with a in a band element, and to see if they see if we like them as a person. Yeah. You know what I mean? The most important thing. I mean, I've made mistakes in the past. You know what I mean? Um, my other band, Divine Heresy. You know, I basically discovered an unknown, and uh, it turned out to be a nightmare. You know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> but you know, we don't need to mention any names. But yeah, you know. Uh, and I also found some other unknowns, you know, Travis Neal, who was also in Divine Heresy as well. You know, so there's a lot of guys that are out there that are that are very talented and yeah. a lot of people in general. And I just want to give whoever is the right person the shot. Yeah. And that's the priority. And I think you're going to do fucking brilliant. Harry. I think it's it's just it's just such a good opportunity to elevate the genre further on that vocal side. And I think that's the exciting bit for me as a fan. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of the fans have made suggestions, of course. Um, but a lot of, you know, it's just, you know, like, oh, why don't you get Devin Townsend to sing? I'm like, well, Devin Townsend has his own band. And he's not going to, he wouldn't have time and a commitment for that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, those are like, you know, it's like, a, what do they call it? Fantasy camp where you like <laughs> go on and you make up your fake football team or whatever, right? Yeah, you yeah, pick yeah. the bass players, and that's kind of like what these people are doing with the band. It's like fantasy camp. 
hey, that's fun. It's all a good yeah, fun, fun. I guess, for the yeah, time yeah. being. But hey, man, priorities, priorities. Get the album out. Get the album cycle on the go. And then we can worry about that shit. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, by way of by way of some sort of uh, late introduction, I'm Jim, and this is the Temple of Bleh. And the idea behind the Temple of Bleh is we like to promote, obviously, music. We also like to. I've got a project going on at the minute, which is what led me to you, which was the history of Rodina Records. Are you all right talking about that particular rabbit hole? Whatever you want to talk about, I'm ready. Fucking a. I'll start with some signposting, because there's some been some cracking interviews with yourself in the, over the past uh, six months. Two, which I'll 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 point people towards, which is uh, No Fucking Regrets podcast with Rob Flynn. Um, uh-huh. you did a, a three-hour mammoth job on that one, and that covers like everything from you crawling out of the womb to where you are today. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then there's the Meet Meet podcast, which is. I, I call in my, my sort of my, my compadre, uh, Ryan Rainbow, who's dealing with like album by album the history of Roadrunners from about uh, '94, I believe. Um, so you you feature on two episodes of that, which is one from D Manufacture, one one for um, the first Brujeria record, which I can't remember the name. Brujeria, yeah. Brujeria Matando Huelos. Yeah, I mean my northern. Oh, no, I think it was Raza Odiada. <laughs> I think it was Raza Raza Odiada, which is the one. I think that's one we talked about. Right, the second record. Second oh, okay. Was it? It must have been 90, 95, 95, 95 okay. as well. Same right. year as um, same year as D Manufacture. Okay, okay, cool. Are you on any more Meet Meeps? Has Ryan got you at Carnage for any more? No, that's just the two for right now. Okay, he'll probably swing back around when Obsolete comes around and things like that. I imagine. Yeah, well, actually, Digimortal is coming up on the twenty fourth. April twenty fourth will be twenty years. Fuck, man. Jesus. Exactly. We're getting old. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the dive bar in my um, my my hometown of Halifax, UK, the real Halifax. Um, it was called the Cooler, and it was the metal pub, and they had linchpin on every fucking night. Every time I walked in, that was my. That was just it's the- funny you say that. That's our biggest and most downloaded streamed song. Hmm. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a, a big very very. Song. Yeah, it's a big track. It just has that beat, that feel. Everybody can dance to it, groove to it, headbang to it. Yeah. You know, all the above. And it's yeah. just when we when we did play it, it was uh we played it in the festival. And the minute we hit that riff, down in it, and the kick drums coming in, you, you just see everybody getting excited and started jumping around. So Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much paced perfectly for that kind of that, that kind of anthemic, that party vibe. It's the closest thing yeah. that Day has got to Andrew WK in terms of party metal. Yeah. Well, we kind of learned that. Um, we kind of learned along the way what works at festivals. Yeah. Because you know, um, you know, Soul of the Machine. You know, that record. Most of it was pretty fast. You know what I mean? Um, but you had you have groovy tracks like Scum Grief and Scapegoat and stuff like that. Um, but most of it was pretty fast. And we realized like when you're playing fast songs like that, sometimes it doesn't always translate well at a festival, yeah. right? It's just the way the music carries. But when you play slow, groovier tracks, Edge Crusher, Lynchpin, that stuff just really translates well live and people just love it. Yeah. Yeah, awesome, man. It's uh, 20 fucking years, that's insane. Anyway, instead of of thinking about 20 years, let's think back 30 years. Um, Okay. So... What you it's interesting the 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 Rob Flynn interview because you talk about it, it seems like there's not a lot of people on the planet who go to LA with the Soul Express 
intention of being a metal rock star. But you seem to have done, you just got off the bus. Someone screamed, uh, you're in the jungle, Dave, and you went, fuck off. I'm just going to start looking for bands and stuff like that. So when you um, start shopping around what would become Fear Factory to, to various labels, you mentioned that Roadrunner was the one that got it. And obviously that's Monty. That's Monty doing his thing. Monty Connor, a and Svengali. Um, yeah. Who, what other conversations were happening at the time? Did, I, I think you mentioned Metal Blade. Was there any anyone else that was that you kind of tried to get a vibe with and, and it just didn't work? No, uh, no one just got the vocals. No one got the vocals. They were like, what is this? Uh, you know, because you had to realize in 1990, it was probably the peak of death metal and grindcore and all that extreme music, right? Yeah. So we kind of fit in there, but we had different elements to the band. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Obviously, the vocals, one of them, the electronic elements and just, uh, you know, um, stuff that maybe people really didn't hear a combination of, you know what I mean? Yeah. So they just turned us down. You know, they were saying, oh, this is not necessarily fit for the label. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Uh, oh, good job, Dino, but this is not what we're into. You know, things like that. Because yeah. I knew a lot of people who worked at these record companies already because we were, um, I had a apartment in Hollywood and in that one bedroom apartment, we were just a part of the scene. So we went out, we, I, we met all the bands, we went to all the concerts. We always said, hey, you, after the gig, why don't you guys come over and party at my house? <clears throat> so we were inviting every band that came through Hollywood to our apartment. And we were having a party. And of course, people, you know, it grew and people found out. <laughs> it traveled all the way to the UK and to Europe and everywhere else. Hey, let's go to Dino's pad. Oh, we're playing Hollywood. Shit, can't wait to go to Dino's pad, right? And then it was like, we started meeting people from the record company. So we started becoming friends with them. So boom, by the time we had Fear Factory, all they had to do was call people up, say, hey, man, I got a demo. We check it out. Yeah, come over. We'll have lunch. You know, that kind right. of stuff. And so it was kind of cool in that way, but it wasn't cool when everybody turned you down. <laughs> yeah. Now, Monty Connor first kind of, in our early demo, Monty heard our early demo uh, before the Ross Robinson album. He heard our early demo and he's like, eh, a little too godflesh, but keep me updated. Right? And for those who haven't so heard Monty speak, that's an immaculate impression. <laughs> so anyways, um, it, was, it wasn't until Max. Max was the one that kind of opened Monty's eyes a little bit. Um, we did the Ross Robinson album, but I think everybody knows about that story, that we did an album that didn't come out because it just yeah. we, it didn't work out legally, right? So we used the we used that album to shop around. I played it. I met Max at a music convention here in Los Angeles in 1991. I played him the demo, and he fell in love with it. He uh, he had a little Walkman with headphones in his hotel room. Played it for him. Fell in love with it. He goes, oh, this is so killer. This is killer. I have to take. I have to tell Monty Connor, you know, about this demo and. Uh, and I was like, and I was like, and he goes, oh, thank you. I keep it. I'm like, no, you can't keep it. Yeah, it's my only copy. So I ended up wrestling him for it on the, on the hotel bed. I tackled him and I got the Walkman and I was able to get the tape back. Right? And I go, look, I'll make you a copy, but I can't. This is my master copy. And uh, the rest is history. Monty, uh, Max told Monty, you got to check it out. So Monty's like, hey, do you know you got to let me check out the, the new demo? <laughs> and so I played, I played it for him and he instantly got it 
He's like, this is it. This is different. I got to get it. The thing I'm trying to also get my head around is like, where's Roadrunner at this point? Because you mentioned yourself, it's at the height of the death and the, the thrash thing. But at the same time, the label themselves are starting to move out of that world. They're starting to look in a more contemporary place. Obviously, that's where the Reese Fulber connection comes from because they just acquired Third Mind. And there was a few other bands that were making the roster, which again, a little bit more grungy, a little bit more alternative. So I bet when Monty saw it, and maybe he'll email me after this and go, you're full of shit. Stop peddling, peddling your fucking lies. He might have thought, okay, not only does this elevate the genre, but the way everything is in the United States, Roadrunner wasn't, it was a force to be reckoned with, but the bands they had, like the Sepulterios and the Obituaries, they were bigger in Europe than they were in the United States. So the label's probably really keen to get something which is totally unique and really breaks that um, <coughs> market. So when we see the binding of this the particular sandwich ended up being sort of the new machine and he sees the elevation of the genre he's probably fucking chomping at the bit to get you with regards to that do you recall the deal at the time do you remember the terms that case was putting on the table at the time yeah that we fucking gave up everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was the terms i mean it was really bad it was really bad really bad record deal and but it was really cool because by the time after D manufacture we were able to negotiate our deal and get a better deal by the time obviously came out but the deal was really bad it was kind of like one of the what they call a 360 deal you know they had they they owned your publishing they owned oh well they you had to sign with their publishing company right they had to, then you had you also had to sign with their merchandising company which is blue grape blue grape yep yeah and then you had to sign, the, uh, and then the record deal. So it's the record deal, the publishing deal, and then the merch deal, right? Yeah. So they had their hand in everything, and you know we were just really broke, starving musicians. You know, we didn't make a lot of money at all. As a matter of fact, we barely scrounged around, and we all still had jobs at some point mm -hmm. during the during the first record. Um, it wasn't until D manufacture that we actually uh, were actually making enough for rent. Wow. You know what I mean? I can't say a living. I mean, because, I mean, of course we lived, but we were barely making enough money for rent. Yeah. 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 Even though yeah. D manufacturer is considered the fan favorite and people think it's bigger than what it is, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until obsolete where things changed. Obsolete was the gold. Demanufactured was it's interesting, but demanufactured is kind of revered as where the sound found it, its form, and I think that's because metalheads are less driven by numbers and more driven by authenticity. That's like their milestone, I think. I, don't know, I can't speak for all for all fans, but yeah, those three sixty deals were fucking brutal. But I think very brutal, very maybe brutal. I'm, maybe I'm shilling. Let, for let a, me tell you this story. Let me tell you this story <clears throat> before. I'm not sure if I told anybody else's story recently or not, but. Um, there was a record company called Interscope Records. You might have heard of them. They had Dr. Dre, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, yeah. right? Uh, Jimmy Ivey owned the company. There was a guy who worked for the record company called Ray Santamaria. Ray heard the minute, actually, he was there. We were mixing D-Manufacture. He was actually in the studio with us. He was a good friend of ours. So he, he recently had got a job from Interscope Records. He was listening to the record as we mixing, and he was like, holy fuck, I got to tell Jimmy Ivey about this record. So we told Jimmy Ivey, and he got us, he got us a meeting with Jimmy Ivey. 
So we actually met with Jimmy Ivey, went into the room, um, and he loved the band. He loved it. He was into it, right? So we're like, fuck, you know, how are we going to get off Roadrunner? And Jimmy was like, well, I'll buy your fucking contract. I'll buy your contract, right? He offered Case Wessels a million dollars. Case said no. Case said no. He turned it down. And we were mad for a little, we were mad for a while because we thought Interscope would have been, I think Interscope might have might have broken the band at the time. You know, you gotta realize, you know, Roadrunner was 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 doing well, doing very well. But they had, I think at that time by 94, 95, I'm not sure if they had broken a band yet. Because Sepultura hadn't gone gold yet. Type of negative hasn't gone gold yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think what type yeah. of negative gold was about, I think it was mid ninety-five. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So and uh, you know, we were like we had an opportunity and we were like, fuck. So, you know, obviously Case wouldn't even negotiate. You know what I mean? So that kind of went goodbye. And mm-hmm. so we were kind of mad for a minute at Roadrunner, but then you know, we got over it and said, Okay, well, we gotta make the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. And they supported us as much as we could, as much as they could. Um, they didn't really have, I don't think they were really strong at radio at that time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think a, a song like now, like Replica, could have been big on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, we might have been a little bit ahead of its time, you know, for that type of metal, clean vocal type thing going on, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just felt that, you know, it could have done a little better. That's mm-hmm. where Obsolete came in. You know, obsolete came in, and we uh, the band sold over a hundred, at least one hundred seventy thousand copies by the time Cars even came out. Yeah. So the first single was Resurrection. So Resurrection got a lot of got a lot of airplay. It got you know smaller rock radio. It got us some airplay. The video was a big hit. Um, it was a great track. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great track, but. The band wanted Edge Crusher to be the first single. Okay. And we were pushing and we were fighting with the label. We were fighting. We were having arguments with Doug Keogh in his office saying, fuck you. We know our fans. They want fucking Edge Crusher. Right. But we ended up, of course, you know, succumbing to what they wanted because they can hold things over your head. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. So we ended up, you know, editing editing resurrection which is a six and a half minute song editing it down to three and a half minutes right it worked sounded cool made a video and it worked for us right but we also still feel in our hearts that edge crusher i think would have been a banger it would just Mm -hmm. would have been an ultimate banger Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that would have been the big song but don't get me wrong resurrection is a classic it's a classic and i think that at the at the at the time when we wrote that record, the, we couldn't have written Resurrection during D Manufacture because we just weren't there yet. Mm-hmm. We weren't there yet as songwriters. We just didn't have that experience yet. It wasn't until touring and you know going into the studio, recording a lot of music, and then you know writing a song like Resurrection. You know, t- it, it, you could you could tell that it takes a band with experience to write a song like that. Totally, man. It's like, it's especially, like said, especially where we came from. You got Leech Master, then all of a sudden, boom, you got Resurrection. Like, you yeah. know, so two, almost two completely different bands. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like I was saying, you know, like deep manufacturer is kind of like the foundation that was set. And everything from there is the experience as it builds on itself and it folds over itself. Well, a lot so, of yeah. people may not know, a lot of people may not know that the idea, obviously, deep manufacturer, we wanted to fucking make a statement and we did, mm -hmm. right? We wanted a fucking cold, ripping, industrial metal album and we achieved it, mm -hmm. right? And, but people were saying, oh, I mean, we're getting, we were getting a lot of criticisms, right? Even though, even though every magazine gave it a five out of five, a 10 out of 10, a hundred out of a hundred, right? Every magazine, all across the board, everywhere. We're like, wow. But fans and other musicians were like, oh, the drums are not real. That's a drum machine or this and that, right? And so we were like, well, you know what? Fuck that. So when we went, well, by the time we got to obsolete, uh, we were like, okay, let's something, let's make something that's a little bit more organic mm -hmm. in tone wise and feeling, right? That because you have you have D manufacturer that's a cold, it's a cold mechanical fucking machine. Yeah. Of course, there's still a lot of there's plenty of human human elements in there, but it's it had that tone where it was like this fucking machine's running down and it's just gonna take you out. Right. Whereas obsolete, like we're going to make it organic. We're going to make it look organic. Mm -hmm. You know, we gave it a brown texture. Right. Um, uh, uh, we wanted to make it like, okay, people don't think we have groove. Fuck you. We're going to fucking give you groove. Right. But we're going to yeah. give you groove in our way. Yeah. All right. Cause at that time, by the time obsolete came out, new metal was just blowing the fuck up. Yeah, totally. Right. Korn's first record came out in 94. You know, they had, they had a few records coming out. And, and, and there were so many other bands that followed after that, right? So we're like, fuck you. We're going to give you our version of fucking Groove. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. Shock. Boom. That's the Fear Factory Groove right there. Yeah. You still have the kick drum patterns. They made it sound like a machine underneath. But you had that fat groove just on top. Yeah. Then, then Edge Crusher. We were like, okay, let's consciously write a song with no double bass and let's see what that sounds like. You know what I mean? Because everything before had double bass. Everything before that. So we're like, all right, let's do a song with no double bass. So boom, there's Edge Crusher. No double bass. It gives boom. it space. There's boom. There's, there's Descent. No double bass. Boom, there's Resurrection. No double bass. We're like, wow, we actually wrote some songs with no double bass. That was like an achievement for us, you know what I mean? To not use double bass, you know what I mean? And it, and it worked out great. And it worked out great. Those songs are classics. Yeah, man, it's, it's kind of like, it, in contrast to D Manufacturing, you say it's kind of like a more human record because it, it you're giving yourself- We consciously did that. We consciously did that. For instance, I'll give you an example. D Manufacturer, you know, the song is 190 BPMs and it's only one BPM for the whole song, right? Whereas uh, when we did Obsolete, what we did is me and Raymond went into, a, you know, we had our studio, we recorded the tracks mm -hmm. like three or four times of like, let's say Resurrection. We recorded three or four times. We picked the best one, yeah. right? And then we were like, okay, let's write the click track to what we just played. Mm -hmm. So it's going to go like this. You know what I mean? There's, there's, 
you know, let's say the song was at 175, then it goes up to 180, then it drops down to 170, and then it goes back up to 180, and then it goes to 175. So it has that natural flow, right? And that was how, when we went into the, to record the actual album, Raymond played to that click track, to the human element click track, which created a feel and a vibe, and it came out amazing. I bet no one off the back of that record said, oh, it's a drum machine. No, not at all. What we Actually, what we did is we actually sampled Raymond's kick. We sampled his, I'm sorry, his live kick, his live snare, and his live toms. Mm-hmm. And we made samples out of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? We made samples out of those. So when we did sound replacements, we were sound replacing it with Raymond's live yeah. samples that just he made, that we just made. Yeah. Just to give it that fucking even more vibe, you know, more sample, you know, more human vibe to it. Yeah. I fucking love So this we thing. actually, so we were actually able to take the machine and actually humanize it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, completely. So, yeah. I fucking love the studio stuff. I fucking love like talking, talking stuff about production is my fucking thing. But um, yeah, I, I want to let's go back. I want to go back to the signing very briefly because it pitched. Obviously, it's all about Monty Connor and that relationship. You pitched Blue Haria to him at the same time, right? Pretty much. Like right after we did Soul of a New Machine, I go, "Hey, I got this other band. Right. Um, we released a, we released a few seven inches. Check it out." So I sent him the recordings. He's like, "Holy fuck, this is crazy shit!" Mm-hmm. And remember, it was still at the height of death metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I pitched him the whole idea, the whole concept, the whole story behind it. And he fell in love with it. And he said, fuck yeah, we'll take that too. There's no, there's no Mexican death metal out there in the United States. You know what I mean? It was nothing like that. Sure, of course, some existed in other countries, right? Yeah. But nothing really existed like that here. Or I'm sure there was Spanish bands, Spanish death metal bands singing in Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. But what we noticed is that there was a lot of uh, like a lot of foreign bands that sang in English. Mm-hmm. Like they never sang, some of them never sang in their native tongue, mm-hmm. right? So we were like, fuck, we're all Mexicans. Let's just fucking make a Mexicans, you know, uh, uh, sang in lyric record. Why don't we do that? So we did. And, uh, and it worked. And it just mm-hmm. sounds scary as fuck to some people. It, it's interesting how Montesi's Fear Factory goes, this is a, a genre ele- elevating thing. It's got sort of the touch points on what Roadrunner's doing already, but it pushes it forward. And Brujeri has sing- a similar kind of thing in that it's a tried and tested band with a, a, it's got a history. They're tight as fuck in the, they're already a unit. Why the fuck not? So with Monty, obviously you're still with him. This isn't the money mm-hmm. podcast, but we know a lot of roadrunners revolves <laughs> around that fucking guy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I can definitely say my career evolves around that guy for sure. What makes him such an effective A&R guy in your experience as an artist? Um, just his talent to re- uh, just his his talent to recognize talent. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? To recognize something about a band that maybe no one else sees. Don't get me wrong, Monty's made a lot of mistakes too. You know what I mean? He, he he first turned down System of a Down. He turned him down. Fuck. First, at the beginning. Right. And then, okay. and then 
when he became other labels that were interested in System of Down, they're like, well, wait a minute, we need to rethink about this, about this band. Okay. And so they, I know that um, they were able to, they were able to invite the band down to Roadrunner Records and have a talk with them. But at that point, they were in the clutches of Rick Rubin's, you know, machine hand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was too late. But Monty originally, I actually gave Monty, or actually um, contacted Monty and said, you got to check out this band, blah, blah, blah. And I go, and he, Monty was into the band, right? Monty was into the band. And then he actually gave, um, I actually had a hand in Monty <clears throat> giving the band their demo deal, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, but there was no guarantee that the label could actually sign them. They only uh, gave him money for a demo. And then, um, but they were, they used the demo and shot to other people, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how that took off. But it was too late. Monty couldn't get him anymore after that. Um, I also I also gave him Cold Chamber. I gave him Spine Chank, uh, Static X. They turned, I don't know what happened with Static X. Uh, in this moment, band called Earshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought a few bands to him. So it's, it's worth mentioning that Monty's batting average is pretty, pretty fucking good. There, as you say, there are some missed bits there, but it's like a it, ANR is a dark art. It's I mean, I, I heard, I heard he even turned, I heard he even, uh, I heard he lost Deftones, Pantera, you know, so there was a lot of bands that he could have signed, but don't get me wrong. Monty does still recognize a lot of talent. He sees it in certain people, right? In certain mm-hmm. musicians. Um, and he, and that takes a talent as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, you know, gambling on a band like Fear Factory. Yeah. Hey, there was no melodic vocals and death metal at that time. There was no yeah. fucking, you know, clean singing like that. A combination of both. There was nothing like that, you know. And uh, he took a chance and it, and it worked. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, and I'm glad he took the chance because, you know, look where I'm at now. Well, this is the thing as well. Do you think on reflection, do you think Roadrunner knew how to handle Fear Factory more than, say, Interscope or more than, say, another label that maybe threw you a bone even though they didn't quite get the vocals? Do you think Roadrunner was the – I have to feel like at the time they're the best equipped to manage those fringe those fringe sounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think that – Yes, I, I I would have to say yes that Roadrunner got the band because of Monty Connor, mm. right? Um, but uh, they definitely got the band more than you know bands labels like Metal Blade, Central Media, you know, Nuclear Blast and and uh, Earache Records and stuff like that. They definitely got it more than those labels for sure. Mm-hmm. Now more than Jimmy Iving, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, Jimmy Ivey's a whole other level. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. and uh, the band going over there could have could have been a whole different thing. But one of the things about Roadrunner in those first three albums is they let us be who we are. You know what I mean? They let us. They didn't get involved in the creative process. Mont, I mean, Monty did. He gave us gave us critique on certain music and things like that. But they let us, for the most part, they let us be who we are. Mm. Let us create what we wanted to create. Like those three, those three records, no one was sitting there saying, "Hey, there needs to be a radio track." No, no one said that. It wasn't until Digi Mortal where things took a turn. And we'll come to that. 
We'll see yeah. how they come to that. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any other relationships with um, anyone else at the label? Say Doug, uh, what was your impression of Case? You know, did, yeah, my, 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 my relationship with Doug was pretty much just fighting for things for the band. <laughs> you know what I mean? But don't get me wrong, we, had a, we definitely had a mutual respect for each other. Mm. Um, and I 100% and I respect him, right? He's doing what he's doing best for the label, and I'm, my, I, my me was doing best what was best for the band. Mm-hmm. right and so we we had differences opinion but it was really cool because you know even though we've gotten to shouting matches we never left there hating each other at all whatsoever yeah you know you gotta you gotta you know sometimes these labels may not get it at the moment maybe they don't understand you know so it's competing interests isn't there and if you can sort of if that's what goes into the room, but not like the social element, then I guess it makes it a little easy to walk out of there still sort of laughing. Yeah. I mean, we, like I said, you know, we had a good relationship with it. I, or at least I had a good relationship with everybody there. Yeah. Yeah. Even case. Yeah. <laughs> everybody to and and Bolvin, uh, Joan Bolvin, who was like the accountant for the, for the, um, for Roadrunner records, you know, I love her to death. Um, and uh, just, you know, of course, and Monty Connor and everybody yeah. else who worked from the girl who answered the phone, you know, to the to the owner of the record company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, we, we, were, we were with them for so long. So you're going to have some sort of relationship with those people. You know what I mean? You got to. You got to. I mean, at the end of the day, if they're meant to be batting your corner at the, uh, uh, on every business front, you've got to be understand how to work with them. And you've got to plant those seeds, haven't you? Early doors. Yeah. But the cool thing is, like I said, you know, with Doug Keogh, you know, even though we've had some shouting matches, we still have a lot of respect for each other. And, uh, but that's just the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so you, you rock to, uh, you rock up to Bearsville studio. Mm-hmm. You spend, what is it? Two weeks on the guitar tone or just the one week and you're, um, over budget by a hundred. Um, okay. okay. What happened? That's, that's a whole different story. People just like to say, Oh yeah, did you spend so much time on the guitar tone and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> People just throw it nonchalantly, right? Or they blame me for it. What happened was, and I have to explain this all the time because I, I don't like how people say it. Okay, what did, go for it. And I, like I said, I, I still get blamed for it now. I read stuff mm-hmm. on Twitter. Well, I heard you took two weeks on the guitar tone so the bass player couldn't fucking play all the bass. You know, I hear a lot of them stuff. Nobody was there. I was there, Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean it like that, by the way. There was a question on the end of it that's not related to guitar. I can just edit all that out and just ask well, that I question. Well, I have to like, say it now. Go for it. I have to say it now. <laughs> I have to say it now. When Colin Richardson was a producer, right? Mm-hmm. I walk in. I have my modified Marshall JCMA 100 mm-hmm. custom amp, custom head, and my Marshall cabinet. Mm-hmm. He didn't like it. He's like, look, you got to use a 5150 with a tube screamer. And I said, No. So imagine, imagine spending hours and hours and days arguing about this. Mm. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I'll say, okay, let's try your, your combination of what you want to use. He connected, he put it together. We, I started playing it and I said, look, nothing against machine head, but this sounds like the machine head burn my eyes That's exactly what Rob Flynn used. Mm-hmm. This sounds like the carcass heartwork tone because that's what they used. And he, and remember, Colin produced both those records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I go, Makes that sense. is them. That is them, but that's not me. 
I have my own individual individuality. I I have my tone that I love. Mm-hmm. And so let's work on this. And he fought me and fought me and fought me to the point where we were wasting days. We were wasting days of this fucking stupid shit. And he was trying to get something and he was saying, oh, I don't like the tone. And he's just like, was going, eh. Like he was kind of crying because he didn't get his way. Sure. Right? Um, but I, luckily I met a guy named Dr. No who played in a band called Bad Brains. He had a store down the street. I happened to be at the store, met him, talked to him, told him my issues. He was super nice. And he brought some speaker cabinets over for me to try. We hooked it up to this Mesa Boogie, brand new Mesa Boogie that he had, hooked up my head, and boom, to me, that was it. Mm-hmm. So Colin finally started to warm up to the idea. I remember, we're going on about 10 days now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How lucky is it that he was just running that, that fruit stand, Dr. No? You just exactly. And I was getting really pissed off because I'm like, look, I already got my sound. You're wasting time. You're wasting money. And so that was the first time we butt heads and I couldn't let it go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was so pissed. Couldn't let it go. Right. So then we finally got the guitar tone. Great. Boom. Finished the guitar tracks. Right. Finished all the guitar tracks. Didn't change any riffs. Didn't change anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when it came time to bass, to play bass, our bass player just didn't have the feel. Right. So Colin Richardson said, look, this guy's not cutting it. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to come over here, here and play bass. And I'm like, Oof, I know how bass players are going to get. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I went back, I listened to the bass tracks and I realized, okay, you're right. Colin, you're right. You know, I don't agree with it, but you're right. And so I had to tell Christian that he couldn't play bass on the record because he just wasn't cutting it. So I had to play bass on the record. I finished the I finished the bass tracks in three days. You gotta remember, I just recorded two weeks of, of guitar tone. Yeah, yeah. So playing bass, only having to play one track, I finished it really quick. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people were saying we were behind schedule. We were, but we made it up. We made up in time by me taking only two, three days to finish the bass. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's still an ongoing topic. Yes. Ongoing. I didn't it's mean still, it to be that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yes. In 19, it's, remember, this is 1995, and it's still going on in 2021. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I apologize for taking it down that road. I didn't mean to. Um, I will direct people okay. to meet me. Because... No, no, no. It's okay. This is kind of cool that it's still here, too. I hope <laughs> you keep it because it's oh, still yeah. here. And so I think it's still great that we'll still talk about it and still address it. There's, there's the whole now, process. Is, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I, no, it's cool. I was just saying like there's, there's bits before the Bearsville studio bit, which is covered really well in Meet Meep as well. So I'll, I'll direct people to that for the full, um, I can't remember the, the name of the first studio with um, the 16 fucking tracks. Uh, sorry, tracks of 60 <laughs> channels that were working on the desk and all that stuff. That's covered really well in Meet Meep. But the, yes. The, the point I was going for was, obviously, the, the the project as a whole was 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 taking now uh, it was taking taking a beating. But what I was going to ask was, 
were you dragged into New York at that point in front of Duggan saying what the fuck's going on? Or was Monty batting your corner uh, at that point? Because the, the project, we know how it ends. The project gets completed and, and demanufactured gets made. So clearly Roderick is still fighting your corner and going, we know what this means. We know what this record means. Yeah. Monty saw the vision of this record. He's like, I know it's going to be big because he felt it. He heard the demos. You know, he's like, shit. So we we initially started at Chicago Tracks. Things fell apart there, and we wasted about $15,000 there before we went to Bearsville, New York. Yeah. So, but, you know, a minute, you know, remember, we had a budget, so we had to stick within our budget, right? But it, it didn't go over budget until we fired, until we went to Bearsville and we fired Cotwell. I got the label to agree to fire Colin Richardson because... At first, the label and the other three band members were for Colin Richardson mixing the album. Mm-hmm. But me, but me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring Reese into this equation because Reese, you know, was kind of like my guy that I could talk to about different production stuff, right? And I was like, look, I'm not happy. I want to use, you know, I, I'm thinking about using Greg Greeley, the guy who, who mixed uh, Sears the Mind Killer oh, and sorry. Millennium Album yeah. and Millennium Album from, from Frontline. I go, I'd like to use that guy. And Reese is like, yeah, I'll put you in touch with him. You know, you know, Reese knows the guy. And, and he's like, and Reese saw that I wasn't happy because he saw that Colin Richardson wasn't really feeling all the keyboards. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That wasn't exactly his forte. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's a quote where Reese says, like, he didn't even feel welcome when he was in the studio uh, when Colin was around. You know what I mean? Not That's because of the band, not because of the band members, but because of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Reese saw, he's like, Dino, I could tell I know you know what you want, and this is not what you want. Mm-hmm. And he was right. Um, and so I convinced Monty Connor to fork out some more money mm-hmm. to get somebody else to mix the record and fly back to Los Angeles and start mixing the record here with Greg Reilly, Reese Fulber, and myself. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And from there, the minute we started on the first track and just the production ideas that Greg Reilly had and Reese Fulber had, I mean, I was literally crying. I was yeah. literally, I was tear, I had tears because finally I got someone to see my vision. You know what I mean? And I got someone to see it and I had the label behind me, believing in it. Um, the band members eventually came around, you know, because at the time they wanted Colin Richardson to mix it. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like the lone wolf in this situation. And um, everybody saw it and everybody finally found it. When they started hearing the mixes going, it was like, I swear to God, it was tears of joy. I was like, fuck yeah. I go, finally. And then you listen to the record now. Listen to it. And it's an amazing record. You know, some people say that, you know, good things aren't always easy or don't come easy. You know what I mean? And in that situation, yeah, it's true. And, um, and unfortunately, in the Fear Factory situation, a lot of it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it when you talk about Colin, not because of the, the headbutting and things like that, but because it's really... It, exemplifies kind of like um 
the sportsmanship about it because you never say a bad word about him other than we butted heads, but there's a mutual respect there. And even now, I think I've, I've read something from Colin. It might have been like a 20-year retrospective or something like that where Colin even goes, you know what? It was the right call in the end of the day. So, you know, all's well, ends well. Until we get to yeah, the yeah, from yeah. Uh, Rodron United. I, you know, I think that we were just in a different – everybody was a different place in their life at that time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um <laughs> the woman who helped us back in the day, she became our manager. Right. And during the, during the recording process of Soul the machine, our first record, she meets Colin Richardson, falls in love and they get married and they moved to England. So it was very difficult for us at that time, back in 1992 to afford phone calls to England for a manager to manage us. Right. Or Remember pre-emails, lunch. Remember pre-emails, pre, pre affordable computers, mm. right. Free cell phones. You know, some people can't compute that because they weren't even born yet. You know what I mean? So that's why I have to say it. But anyways, so we couldn't really afford her as a manager. So we ended up having to fire her and she kind of took it the wrong way. So during the recording of D Manufacturer, remember, she's married to Colin Richardson. She kind of took it out on us during that, during those recordings. Yeah. Yeah. In particularly me. There's a number of stars that are aligning during the, uh, Yes, particularly of me and so, and Colin Richardson was kind of in the middle of this man ex manager, you know, and me, you know, kind of also butting heads mm. because remember she was running all of Colin Richardson's business, right? So we didn't we didn't agree on some of the business things either. Mm-hmm. So I was butting heads with her. Colin's in the middle. He's yeah. like, ah, you can't take it. Mm-hmm. We're having issues with the guitar tone. I'm sorry. Issues with him liking my guitar tone. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of stuff going on there, and it was just added a lot of tension and friction during that album. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I'm okay. I can function under uh, friction and tension. I can function. I'm okay. Other people can't handle it. Yeah. And so that was the reason. Well, it was one of the reasons why we look. Like, I could tell that maybe Colin's heart wasn't into it anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, all this shit that was going down between me and him and his wife, manager, our ex-manager, all this tension that was going on. Um, he just wanted to get the fuck out. He just wanted to finish the project and get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the vibe I got. Yeah. And um, you could hear it in the mix. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I was able to convince Monty Connor, Hey, this is not working out. Listen to these mixes. And Monty's like, yeah, you're right. So I go, this is what I suggest. And he was like, okay. I go, but we're going to need, but we're going to need about another (laughs) $30,000. He's like, Oh, he goes, okay, I'll get it for you. He did it. And look what came out. I'd love to be the fly on the wall when he walks into uh, Doug's office. (laughs) (laughs) When that happened. So moving on for Monty, I have to say, I, you know, I really handed to Monty for really going to bat for us when he needed to. Um, and like, again, I, I love Doug Keogh, you know, so there's a lot of history behind these records. There's a lot of stuff yes, there. There's a lot so of, much, dude. It's I mean, so there's much. so much, there's so many stories, you know, there's so many stories and I'm sure if you talk to the other guys in the band, they'll have different stories as well. I mean, those records we toured during D manufacture, fuck that was a long, long tour. We did long tours. This is that's very long tours. Next question is quite nicely. So I asked people. It seems to be this is a milestone moment for the for the label, right? 
but every time I ask anyone about it, they just go, oh, it was amazing. I don't remember anything. I was fucking hammered for three days. So Dina, can you tell me your memories of Dynamo Night in 95? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it, it was like the Roadrunner Fest, yeah. right? Because every band from Roadrunner was on that festival. Um, I definitely was not wasted. Not at all. I wanted to enjoy every moment of that festival. And it was, it was, it was great. I can go back and watch the footage and it just brings you back to a good time where everybody knew each other, you know, at Biohazard, type of negative, machine head, so fly, uh, doggy dog, life of agony. I mean, we knew every band. So it was like the minute everybody came out of their buses and stuff like, Hey, 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 you know? So it was just one of those moments. It was a great time. It was a great uh, moment. And I loved, I love that festival. You know, yeah. it was a, I just remember when Typo Negative played, right? Typo Negative was coming on, their intro started, and it started raining. But it, it fit really well. Because that's when they were kind of like using the dead trees in the background. Yeah. They had these like dead trees that they would bring out. They were all black. Everything was green and black and stuff. And it was like, then all of a sudden it starts raining at the festival. They went on like, you know, just when the sun was about to come down. Mm-hmm. You know, six thirty, seven o'clock in the evening. Sun was coming down, rain was out, and it was just like, wow! It was just fitting. Everybody was like, everybody was just mesmerized. Pete Steele singing all those songs, drinking his big bottle of wine, and just playing. <laughs> and everybody was just like, to me, they were like probably one of the best bands of the night. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Paradise Lost were the headliners, but I think that no one talks about them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember who headlined to be honest with you. Dude, that, but that's cool. Those guys are great. Love those guys. Yeah, man. I'd love to know the numbers of the the sales for the band before and after because that the, from a performance perspective, I think there's a lot of things that kicked off. I know like Doggy Dog then went on tour with Biohazard because they blew up in Europe. There's a few sort of moments like that which I think Dynamo is the catalyst for, and I, I think I need to I need to do some more homework on that one. I think. I just think that uh, Roadrunner had all the hot bands at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why a lot of bands from Roadrunner were on that thing. I mean, that's why they called it Roadrunner Fest. They didn't even call it Dynamo. They called it Roadrunner Fest. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was speaking to uh, Alain Verhav, who was the international marketing person in Amsterdam at the time. He made bespoke Roadrunner umbrellas and Roadrunner like mugs and things like that. So everyone who was backstage, who was just getting hammered with the bands and stuff, <sighs> could just have, have this weird bespoke merch that they'd made. It just seems like a really weird and special time. That's anyway. why you that's why you would think it's a Roadrunner Fest. One of the yeah. reasons. Yeah, you know completely. <laughs> How did oh 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 I nearly missed one then. The video game stuff. So my actual first experience with Fear Factory was I I was a big gamer back in the day. Uh-huh. And uh, my first one of the first my introduction to metal was Carmageddon 2, which had mm-hmm. Iron Maiden in a band called I think it was um conscientious or something like that or something like that but mm. i've got a mate who is a bit of a completionist and he got calm again and one invited me over and that was the fir- my first exposure to fear factory which uh, i think it was um zero signal on like the intro screen or something like that but from what i can gather i think it is like one of the first times that happened where people were giving out their full actual songs not just like midi recreated ones but full licensed arrangements out to to the video game companies and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was Raymond that kind of orchestrated that because it was his scene, more or less. It was kind of his thing. 
how did the label take that? Because that's a completely different thing for them, isn't it? That, I wonder if they'd even well, considered it. Well, that was definitely, Raymond was a gamer. And he yeah. said, you know what? I, I want to get into this market. I want to get into this business. Hmm. So I'm going to use... I'm going to use Fear Factory and pitch Fear Factory and try to get my foot in the door. So he started going to all the video game conventions and he, he put instrumental tracks on a CD mm-hmm. and he put his card there and he just went and started handing out these music, instrumental music CDs of Fear Factory until finally he started getting callbacks mm. and he started doing business with these people and he started, and he started opening the doors for us. Right. And then it just kind of grew from there. We got so many fucking offers. It was crazy. So he, Ray, Raymond was the catalyst to Roadrunner starting a placement department where they place music in video games, movies, and so on. So because of Raymond, the label was forced to do that because there was so much business coming in. Yeah. Yeah. For Fear Factory. You think and that was a whole other income, just so you know. Yeah. It's completely fresh. For that time and the technology was only just there because at that point it was cartridge based so you couldn't have like full songs on there but it, it's, yeah it's really cool because if you think of it from the game perspective like the art industry it, imagine if someone just comes to your desk and goes oh have you got a composer for your music not yet well here's some songs that's like months off the production schedule makes it loads easier well, yeah well raymond saw that idea he was like you know like there's no there's no bands what the fuck you know i think there might have been something I, you know, very little, mm. anything at all, you know? Uh, so Raymond's like, fuck that. I'm going to get my band on these fucking games. I think, I think our music should be on these games. Cause you probably might've played something where back in the nineties, maybe, I don't know. I don't even know if Tony Hawk still existed back then. Did he? I think it was Cause we're, 90. Cause we're talking D we're talking D manufacture days. Yeah. So 95 to 98. I think Tony Hawk was 99. Okay. So, because I think it was before they were putting like punk, punk metal in those skate games and stuff like yeah. that. You know what I mean? So there might've been some stuff in there, but Raymond really took the bull by the horn and really made a lot of connections. As a matter of fact, he was, he, when he was out of Fear Factory, he was just writing video game music for games. You know what I mean? He was writing, writing music for games. Yeah. And it was great because there was a guy whose name was Tony Tellerico. And Tony Tellerico was a very famous uh, music composer for video games. I mean, he became very wealthy from that, right? Mm-hmm. So we were doing a game, uh, what, uh, Speed Racer. I don't remember which game. Test Drive 5. Test Drive 5, maybe. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. But he, uh, the video game company said, hey, look, we want, we want Fear Factory, but we think it would be cool if you wrote original songs for us. Mm-hmm. And you should get Tony Tellerico to come help you produce it. And we were like, what? Fuck yeah. So they paid us a shit ton of money, went in the studio, and we bashed out like three or four songs. All right? Really, some of them were only like 30 seconds long. Mm-hmm. Some of them were, only, were a minute long. Right? You got to remember, it's for a video game. So they just repeat it over and over. They don't necessarily play a whole song. Right? And so. Um, we went in there and we just bashed out a bunch of these little snippets of songs mm-hmm. and it was great. And we had a blast and it was like definitely a big experience that, you know, cause Tony was there and he was kind of like the conductor, seriously, like the conductor. You can see yeah, the jigsaw play, pieces play, falling play, in. Yeah. Play this, play it. Yeah. I was like, fuck yeah. I was like, Oh man, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was like, yeah. And it was so exciting because 
he was excited to work with us because he had become a fan, right? Mm-hmm. He had become a fan, right? Can't say he's a metalhead because he's not a metalhead, but he's become a fan and because of Raymond and because of the, you know, the music, music style. And he liked it. He was like, wow, this is amazing. This sounds killer. I mean, I mean, anybody in the video game history hears de-manufacture or remanufacture, they're going to be like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's perfect for video game music. Yeah. So he was really excited to work with us. We were excited to work with him. And like I said, he was in the studio with us. We were all live. And he was like conducting the band and yeah, yeah, yeah. More of that, more of that, more of that. Go, go. It's like, and it was great. It was a fun time. It's an innovation, which is, I think is just completely understated. And I think it's it's still even workable today, like video game music, not even from a nostalgic perspective, but the stuff that people are doing in these sort of independent um, sort of fringe games is sort of really pushing the mark. So good yeah, for re- you. For Raymond really, yeah, Raymond really opened the doors and opened, opened the doors for that industry. And he uh, definitely, you know, opened a lot of people's eyes and ears, um, you know, where video game companies were like, oh, maybe we can hit up, Rob Zombie, White Zombie. Maybe we can hit up Metallica. Maybe we can hit up, you know, Rage Against the Machine. Maybe we can hit up these bands and this music. I know. And then boom, it just it just opened the door and took off. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly that kind of market as well. Like, who's the metalhead? Who, who's into this kind of stuff? It's all like it's a Venn, the Venn diagram crosses over. So it's a, it's an open goal. Anyway. Yeah. Well done, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't you don't know how many times we hear people tell us. Yeah, I discovered you from this game. I discovered you from this game. I, I discovered you from this PC game. You know what I mean? It's like I don't even I don't even I can't even tell you the name of all the all the video games we were on. I can't even tell you. Because one, one, I wasn't a gamer. Two, um, it's just too many to remember. Uh, so I mentioned earlier Typo had a massive party when they first got the gold. Did Roadrunner throw you a party when obsolete went gold? No, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no they didn't no they didn't at all i mean dude we were i don't know we were a very busy band we were always on the road um we actually got our gold records when we were on the road and we, we were actually playing uh we were playing in new york city at the i can't really name the place mm-hmm. but we got our gold records there right. at, at a show headlining show in new york city okay okay so so no time for a party. Yeah. <laughs> the show was the party for everyone else but you. Correct. Oh, no, it's, it's the party for me, too. Trust me, I love playing every night. Yeah, man. Tell me about the relationship with the label as we go into Digimortal and things start becoming a bit strained, I guess. Ah, uh, uh, here we go. Here yeah. we go. If you don't want to talk so about Mar- it, you don't have to. No, 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 no. For, no by all means. I don't mind talking about stuff that happened to me and all whatsoever or things that happened, you know? Yeah. Um, well, during the Digimortal process, the record label said, Hey, well, you're just coming off a gold record of obsolete. I think that you need to write some more accessible songs. And I said, what radio fucking songs? They go, yeah. Accessible songs. I'm like, okay. And he goes, and Monty goes, we're going to send over some, we're going to send a producer over to meet you guys and maybe he can guide you into writing these type of songs. Okay. And I was like, mm. I was like, I don't know. I was really against it. The other guys in the band were like, Dino, look, you need to let go of the, let go of your control mm-hmm. and let somebody else come in and give us some ideas and see what happens. 
So I, I agree to it. You know, it's kind of hard to explain, but when sometimes when you're an artist, you know, you're, you're close to criticism. You're close to other ideas. You, that's just it. It's, it's your baby. It's your thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to explain to, to a listener how the feeling is, yeah. but when it's your, when you feel like it's your thing, you know, you don't want somebody else to come up, come up and try to ruin it for you. Right. Yeah. So anyways, I agreed. The record company sent in some producers. They're like, okay, Dino, play this. Like, what the fuck is that? It's not fucking fear factory. What the the kids are listening to. Yeah. I was just like, that's what's, what's that? It's whack. And I was like, and then he's trying to, you know, he's telling Raymond like, like this. And it's like, so the oh, you go. brand the thing which you, you know, he, he you tried to change the, the band. He, he yeah. wanted to change the band. So I said, look, you got to go, mm-hmm. right? You got to go. So he left. So so the guys in my band were saying, look, you, got, you can't be so hard on these guys. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll go along. I'll play along with you. So we ended up actually recording some demos of our own. By the time we were doing acres of skin, we were doing acres of skin. You know, we had all these songs written. Yeah. And then this other producer comes in. I can say his name. His name is Oluk Wild. Mm-hmm. He's a good friend of mine. Great guy. He comes in. Here's our demo. And he goes, "These demos sound amazing. You don't need me." Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, man. This is fucking good." And I said, "Really?" Because the record label wants this guy to, or, or, or told this guy to come in. He's like, "Really? That guy?" He, you guys, I, I don't see that working, right? Anyways, so Uruguay was like, you don't need me. It sounds great. So then they send us this other guy. His name was, his last name was Springer. I can't remember his first name right now. Okay. But it was Springer. And uh, he actually had a few good suggestions. Because we're like, look, we got about eight songs written for the record. Check them out. And he goes, okay, he listens to the songs. And he goes, okay, let's play them live, and I'll give you my opinion, and I'll give you my criticism. I have a few ideas. So he was like, Lynchpin. We, we played on Lynchpin. Love the track. We had the pre-chorus would go like four bars. We had a four-bar pre-chorus going into the chorus. And he goes, goes, cut it down to two bars. I'm like, Why? <laughs> I was like, why? <laughs> you know, it sounds good as it is. You know, you gotta you gotta remember I got this shield up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm protecting Fear Factory. That's just was my, you know, that's how I felt. I don't blame you. No one could come in and tell me what to do, you know, that kind of thing, right? And I could see the other guys going like, calm down, calm down, you know, relax. <laughs> and then um so he goes, cut it down to two bars. I'm like, okay, let's try it. And then Bert only sing this part one time. Okay. So we did it. And I was like, I'm going to just do it. He goes, let's, let's do it again. Let's try it one more time. So we do it again and blah, blah, blah. We do it like four times. And by the fourth, fifth time, I was like, this is actually pretty fucking good, but I don't want to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to tell him that, but this is actually pretty good. I eventually did tell him, you know what? You're right. This was good. It was a good yeah. thing. And so he helped us with a handful of songs. Like, yeah. you know, just gave us suggestions like what will become. 
down out down out down down and there's the 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 pre-chorus used to be the verse and the verse used to be the pre-chorus he said flip it he said flip it around and so we did it and boom it made sense and it fucking worked just little suggestions like that he didn't change the band he didn't change my riff he didn't say play bang play these boring chords he was like no just he gave us a few arrangement suggestions and a few you know things like that and it worked out great and we're like I was like, I like this guy. What do you think about this song? You know, it got to be like, oh, okay, let's listen to this song. Let's see if we can work this song out, blah, blah, You know, and, and he it just, it was just, he did like about five or six songs with us like that. And we're like, okay, I like this guy. And so it worked out. That, that one worked out. It's just, I guess it's just the process of trying to find the right guy that works well with the band. You know what I mean? Was it a struggle though having a revolving door of people that Roadrunner was sending in though? It was, yes, it was. Yeah, he was the last guy we settled on. He was the last guy we settled on. So, um, but then the label wanted us to use Bob Rock to produce the album. <laughs> after all, after all this, I yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think Saint Anger was already out by then, right? Well, I know Load or Reload were already out by 94, yeah, 95. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if St. Anger was out. I don't know what year that came out. That was 2003. Okay, so so we were we were before St. Anger. Anyways, because this is 2000. And so I actually had a conversation with Bob Rock on the phone. I believe he was in Hawaii at the time. Mm-hmm. Here I was having, I was in, I had a conversation with him and we seemed to get along and everything seemed to, he seemed to really like the band. He liked the songs that he heard. And so we were kind of like tentative, tentatively scheduling a time to go on with Bob Rock. Crazy, right? Yeah. Bob fucking Rock. Yeah. Especially like and a decade into I was, his like. Yeah. I was excited, but at the same time, cautious. Right. Yeah. So, um, he uh, he ended up pulling out before we were going to go in the studio. He ended up pulling out because he ended up taking a much bigger, better gig. Okay. Can't remember what band it was, but it was somebody big, probably paying him millions of dollars, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So we ended up not using Bob Rock. We ended up using uh, a guy named oh, – actually, us and Reese produced the album yeah. with the engineer, Mike Plotnikoff. We ended up mixing the album. So, and it came out great. I still love the record. There's probably a few things I would, what's that? It's my favorite. Yeah. There's probably a couple of things I would have changed on there, but very little. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it was that right. So hang on. In terms of the timeline, this is where we get to a point where the band splits, albeit temporarily, Divine Heresy. We, um, we split. Well, first of all, the tension started during the writing process. Okay. Like I said, I was very protective of Fear Factory and I was trying to hold on, you know, not, you know, very close minded to letting outside people come in. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's where the tension first started. You know what I mean? Um, You know, there was a lot more hip hop elements than I would have liked to be on the record. Sure, maybe as B sides, but there was too many hip hop elements for me on the record. Sure. You know, for my for my liking. Not that I don't like hip hop. I love hip hop. Sure. But when, when you're trying to create your own artwork, I mean, sorry, your own p- piece of art, sometimes you don't always want those outside elements. No. You know, 
ingrained in, in the in the oh, no, baby. the record the record yeah your baby and so that's kind of like how i was and you know that's kind of like where tension started all right yeah um and then the second time was when we went in to do the video for linchpin right okay. so we're doing a video for linchpin and you guys know the video as it is mm-hmm. the video used to be completely different okay um the video looked like a complete like like how do i explain it too artsy it's very artsy first of all linchpin's a very fun you know upbeat song that people can get into you know (laughs) and the video wasn't like that Mm -hmm. the original video wasn't like that so i had a little bit of clashes with the band and i was like look we need this is not this is not working I wish I had a copy of that original video because people can really see what I was talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was like, I, uh, we got to change this video. Man. This is video. So I call, I, I talked, I talked to the record company. I said, I go, Monty, watch this video. Does this, does this fit with the track? Monty's like, I see what you're saying. I don't think it does. I go, I think somebody needs to re-edit it and recut it. So that was the second kind of the second thing that I had issue with the band mm-hmm. because you know Burton was for the artsy one I was not for the artsy one mm-hmm. and then you know me getting the label behind changing the edit of the video mm-hmm. and getting somebody else to come in and add certain elements so my element was hey man find some machinery that'll go along with the beat oh no problem go to stockfootage.com blah blah found a machinery so you see kind of see like this press going like that fits the band that's it that's the image right yeah industrialization and yeah and it worked it worked perfect it worked perfect and it's and it's it's one of our most streamed and downloaded songs it's actually the biggest stream downloaded songs yeah yeah right and so that was the second clash and then the other clash was obviously clashes that i had with Burton on tour, we had clashes. Um, uh, then we had altercation, and then it just, for some reason, he couldn't let it go. Mm-hmm. I was able to let it go. I like snipping. I like snipping things in the butt. If you have issues, I like to take care of it right away. Yeah, I don't like to dwell on it because if you dwell on it, then it could turn into worse. Mm-hmm. Then people stop talking to each other. People stay angry at each other forever. Blah blah blah. But once you talk it out, get it over with then you can move on. But I guess he had more issues with that than I did. Right. And he ultimately quit the band. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Then the band reforms, I don't know, a year or two later, uh, without me. And this is like 2002, 2004 ish, isn't it? 2002. Between- and then they, I, I think archetype came out in 2004. Yeah, I think so. I want to say, so by February, 2002, I was out of the band. Yeah. After we got back from Australia, uh, we toured there January, February, and when I, we got back, uh, Bert broke up, and then we were, we were actually getting prepared to write the follow-up to DG Mortal, right? Bert, Bert blamed Raymond and Christian. Raymond and Christian blamed Bert. So I never really got the true story. Sure. As is of the case these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I never got the true story when I was out of the band. I've heard Bert recently say, he, he said, I changed as a person. Uh, I've heard him say all kinds of things. So I don't really know because it's very, 
I don't know, conflicting, yeah. right? But I think it's because, me personally, I think it's because, you know, I've heard them say, well, Dino's control freak, right? And I've heard Reese say, well, if you didn't have Dino, the manufacturer wouldn't exist. You know what I mean? So Reese sees it as like, I'm an artist and I know what I want. I see the vision and no one else is going to try to come and take away that vision, right? So that's how Reese sees it. Reese just sees it completely different than the other three guys in the band, which caused obviously tension. So that's why, and I never, like I said, I never got the real story. So I don't even know. So um, they ended up starting the, ba- uh, starting the band without me. Uh, they released two records. But by the time the second record, ca- second record came along, Transgression, mm-hmm. there was already inner turmoil within those three guys. Right. Things fell apart. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there. This is stuff that Bert's, has, Bert's told me or other people working for the band have told me. So I wasn't necessarily there. I'm only quoting those people. Right. Mm-hmm. Or just what I've read or, or heard about. Right. Sure. Um, so there was a lot of tension between there. Bert kind of, kind of leaves the band in a way. He just doesn't want to work with those guys. Okay. So the band's in limbo. Raymond and Christian are doing Archaea, which fell apart. And then Bert decides to bring the band back together around 2009. He asks me, he, we ended up seeing each other at a ministry concert. We talked and I thought that was okay. I didn't have an issue with that. You know, a, a few years have already gone by, about six or plus six years or so had already gone by since I'd been out of the band since 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little more, seven years, right? Okay. Seven yeah. years. And so um, after talking to Bert that one night, I was like, okay, so this is okay. I'll give him my number. So I gave him my number. And he goes, he asked me, hey, can I call you? And I was like, sure. So I gave him my number. He ended up calling me. And, you know, at first it was a small talk. How you doing? How's the family? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you been up to? That kind of thing. Second call was like, you know, kind of similar, similar conversation, right? And he's like, yeah, wouldn't it be? Then it was kind of like, you know, he throws it out. Hey, man, wouldn't it be cool if we work together again? Yeah, maybe. I'll see, you know, blah, blah, blah. By the third call, he's like, look, <laughs> I'm going to get to the point. I'm going to get to the point now. I want you to come back. What do you think about coming back into the band? I'm going to say, how? Like, what's, what's the plan? What's the, you know, what are you trying to get at? Yeah. He goes, what do you think about coming back into the band with me, Raymond, and Christian? And I said, well, just because me and you are talking doesn't mean that I haven't passed things up for Raymond and Christian. So things would have to be talked. We'd have to all talk about it and get it together. And he goes, well, look. He goes, I'm going to come out to L.A. And I'm going to sit down with Raymond and Christian. And I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell him about you and I'm going to tell him, cause look, I have a record contract ready to go. Um, so he told Raymond and Christian, he's like, you, I want Dino to come back. Uh, and I have a record contract. Now, Bert had stated all this. I'm quoting Bert here because Bert actually said it in a blabbermouth interview. It, it was all there. The story's all yeah. there. So, so Raymond and Christian both said no to everything. Fuck Dino, fuck your contract, right? Fuck. So Bert told me, before, before the interview, before he met up with those guys, Bert asked me if I wanted to um, join him in that meeting. And I said, mm, 
I don't know how I feel about that. I don't think I'm ready to talk to those guys yet. Sure. I think you should talk to them first and see what happens. Right. Yeah. And so that's what he did. That's what he did. Where recently he quoted and said, I wasn't at that meeting, but he made it sound like I didn't want to go to the meeting, mm. which is, which is, which is kind of true because I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to talk to those guys yet. But it's not ready. Yeah. Yes. Context is a little bit different. But I wasn't ready to talk to those guys yet at all. I mean, I just, you know, I had, I had also gone through a different lawsuit because when you're in a divorce, you got to split everything up with the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. And so things got ugly when shit was being split up. We're talking to like when they were putting out, when they were going to put out Architect. Mm-hmm. You know, when I left the group, obviously there's corporations involved, there's trademarks involved, there's a lot of money involved. So you yeah. have to kind of split all that things up and I need to get my share because I'm going solo now. So whatever my portion with that was connected to fear factory now has to be separated from that mm-hmm. and come be, to you separately, come to me separately. Right. And so that was a big ordeal. Yeah. I bet <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So lawyers got involved. You're picking the 360 and making it into a 270 <laughs> with 90 over there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, lawyers got involved. So it was a little hairy. It was a little hairy there. Things are said in the press. Of course, like every band breakup, typical thing is he said, she said, blah, 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 blah. He's a dick. He's a dick. He's an asshole. He's an asshole. All the typical stuff. Yeah. So I was like, fuck that. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I didn't even need Fear Factory at the time. Right. I was doing a successful Divine Heresy. Yes. We put out two very successful records. And I was able to accomplish that with two different singers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? On each yeah. record. So we were actually going to go on to the third record, believe it or not. Uh, and we've toured with Divine Heresy, toured with everybody during that time. You know, Arch Enemy, uh, Chimera, All That Remains, Shadows Fall, Static X took us, took us out a few times. It was like we were just on the road with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. We were on fire. Um, it, that's kind of like more of me calling in favors. I remember because I was just playing it, starting to play guitar at the time, and I couldn't get rid of you. You were all over the fucking place. Every every press outlet, every sort of guitar magazine, it was all fucking Dino from Divine Heresy. And I wasn't totally <laughs> aware of Fear Factory at that point, save for my Carmageddon experience. So it was. It's funny. It's funny you say that because a lot of people didn't know Fear Factory when I was in Divine Heresy, hmm. or they heard of yeah. it, but they didn't make the connection, yeah. which was kind of cool because it had its own fans. It had its own vibe completely. And, own and, vibe. Not- and, then, and then at some point, the Fear Factory fans started to come over, to migrate into the Divine Heresy fans. And then it grew. It started yeah. to grow, right? Um, but anyway, so when Bert had that meeting with the guys, with Raymond and Christian, I just wasn't ready to go to that meeting. I wasn't sure. ready to meet with those guys. I just wasn't there yet. And I hadn't patched anything up with those guys. Just me walking cold into that meeting. Yeah, could have been. It could have been. Works. It could have been. A, it could have been a bigger disaster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Bert went there. Things didn't work out. Bert's like, "Well, you know, I'm going to give you guys one last shot, and if it doesn't work out, we're, I'm, I'm going to sue you." And then the last thing they said is, "I'll see, I'll see you in court." Ugh. So then Bert asked me. So then Bert asked me. He says, "Look, those other guys are not going to come to the table. Do you want to join me or not? Because I'm going to have to sue these guys now." Right. And I'm like, do I want to 
put my foot in that water or not? You know, mm-hmm. is it cold? Ooh, it's cold. It's a little cold. Do I, <laughs> do I go there? You know what I mean? Do I do that? Do I take the chance? So I flipped the coin. I lost. I said, I'm going to go in and I'm going to join you. Wow. On a coin. On hey, a coin. Man, that's how I, I make like, most of my decisions. <laughs> it was just one of those moments like, do I do this? Do I not do this? And I decided, you know what? Fuck it. Let's take the chance. And I did. And um, we ended up suing Raymond and Christian. And we came to an agreement mm-hmm. where Bert and I would own the name. Yeah. And we would just have to pay them. Just one lump sum and it's done with. Well, no. We had to pay them X amount. Of, we, pay, we, we buy the name, yeah. right? Which we did. Mm-hmm. And then... For so many years, we got to give them a certain percentage. Okay. Right. Fair enough. And then that's, that's that, the agreement. That's the and then that and then that went crazy. That just was another thing. Yeah. Fuck. We're now we're now we went we got into a bigger court battle, right? And then and then um, Bert filed for bankruptcy, but he failed to list certain items on the bankruptcy. Uh, when you file for when you file for a Chapter Seven bankruptcy, you have to list all your assets. Yeah, right. I mean, we're talking about from your shoes to your gold ring, to your businesses, to your car, to the wallpaper, to your trade, to your trademark, to your songs. You know, you're a musician. This is a business. This is a band. This is um, those are assets. Those are considered assets. Anywhere, anything that's worth anything is considered an asset, right? Yeah. And so Bert didn't list everything. And so he eventually got found out. The court found out. And uh, unfortunately, he lost the name. What happens is, is that the court has the right to sell your assets to, to pay back your creditors. Mm-hmm. So whoever you list, whoever you list in your bankruptcy that you owe money to, you have to, um, the court can take your assets. Like if you had boats and houses and cars and businesses, the court can take all that and sell it and pay back the people you owe money to. It's the liquidation process is the priority. Liquidation process, exactly. So they were liquidating Bert's assets. Mm -hmm. And one of those assets was the trademark. Mm -hmm. His 50% ownership in the trademark. So, what the court does is they put it up for auction and people can bid on it. You know, people uh, in Bert's case, uh, Bert had a trademark. So people in the music business, they, they would, the court would market it to people in the music industry mm-hmm. to buy this asset. Right. Yeah. Because that's who would know what to do with the asset. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people bid on it. People bid on Bert's uh, 50% of this trademark. You know, a lot, a lot of people like to say, oh, Dino, you stole it from Burton. Oh, Dino, you, so, you sued Burton. I go, I was, I was never in a lawsuit with Burton. Never. There's been a lot of misunderstanding out there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that Burt kind of said that diluted the water, right? Mm-hmm. He, yeah. kind of, he kind of put me, Raymond, and Christian all in the same thing that mm-hmm. – made people believe that all three of us sued him or whatever. Right. But in reality, this was all his own actions and it was his own bankruptcy. 
And it's worth right. knowing that all this is of public record as well. It, it's, yeah, all I this, think, nothing, yeah, yeah. nothing that I'm saying is new yeah. or nothing that I'm saying hasn't been reported already. There we go. That's just the disclaimer. Right? There we go, yeah. I'm only telling you my version of the story that's already been told. Yes, your right? point of view. Where you're yes. sat, looking at Where up. Metal Sucks did a whole breakdown of it with, the, yeah. with all the contracts and all that stuff and all the bankruptcy filings and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah so unfortunately, the trademark went up for sale, mm-hmm. went up for auction. People bid on it. Mm-hmm. And I bid on it, right? And I was like, shit, I got to fucking, you know, other people, somebody might, somebody else might own it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I it. owned, I already owned my 50%. Yeah. So it, how that works out, this is something new. Maybe nobody knows really how this works. But if I own 50% and Joe Schmo owns 50%, if I wanted to do Fear Factory, I'd have to give that other guy 50%. Mm. Do you understand? Yeah, which wouldn't make any sense. Well, as a, as a, well it, it does legally, but from a band perspective. is from Joe a band Schmoke perspective. Is, no. Yeah, because it could be just some dude who buys trademarks for a living. Because there's yeah. people out there that do that. Right? Yeah, and maybe he's like, hey, well, I'll buy this because I think it's going to be worth something. And that other schmuck over there owns it. Me, you know, owns the other half. So if he wants to use it, he's got to pay me. But if he wants to use it, he would have to pay me. Mm -hmm. So it works both ways, Mm -hmm. right? So I was like, I can't let this. I can't let this happen. Yeah, I gotta buy the name. I'll buy the name. Me and Burton can continue Fear Factory. Mm -hmm. See, the thing about it is, is like everybody's like, won't you just buy the name and give it back to him? I go. He just lost it in federal court. Mm. Now, if I bought his share and gave it right back to him, the court is going to say, hmm, you were in collusion. How did, you, guys are, you guys are fooling us here. Yeah, What's yeah. going on? So I couldn't do that, right? Yeah. So I would ha- if I bought that bird's half, I would have to own the whole thing, but I could give him 50% of the share profits. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm Unreasonable. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can give them fifty percent of the profits. No ownership. No, but we can. Out for the yeah, beneficiary. No, no ownership. But you can be equal. Equal. You get equal credits myself. I've said this in I've said this in interviews before. Blah blah blah. It's out there. Anyways, so yeah, so it got sold. I was lucky that I won. Mm-hmm. Ended up doing a deal. Got it all worked out. I'm still making payments on it. By the way. Yeah. To, it's a lot of money making payments on it and boom, that's just where we're at. And then Bert decides to quit for whatever reason, mm-hmm. which I don't know why. I really don't know why he quit, but I, I, all I can go by is what he says. Like, I don't want to work with Dino. I don't want to talk to Raymond or Christian ever again, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, you really, let's just, you can, let's, you, let's just, let's get past all that bullshit talk again and let's just get back to work and make records but you know he doesn't he doesn't want to for whatever reason and that's fine that's his decision then now we're in a point where the, the spoken the, the, the wheels turning and we're jumping back on yeah we're, we're at the point where it's where you know I'm going to decide on a singer any day now yeah. um, there's 
there's multiple people that are really good, mm-hmm. really good. Um, even some females that are really good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And making a decision is going to be definitely tough. Um, you know, will the fans accept them? Will the fans not accept them? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I worry about all those kind of things, but at the same time, I got to be like how I was in the beginning and not fear, not fear change. Mm-hmm. I necessarily don't fear change, but I do take into consideration how fans are going to take it. Sure. Right. Sure. Right. I mean, I can't base everything I do on what a fan might think because then I'll never get anything done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but it is a definitely a big decision. Right. And wherever I choose, I want them there to be for the long run because I plan on making a, you know, a few more records, you know, before I'm retired or gone or whatever. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's definitely a big decision and it's, a, it's, it's, some it's some big shoes to fill. You know, I want to get back to playing songs that we never got to play live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no secret that Bert, had some vocal issues when he sang live he just couldn't sing certain songs it's just it just happens right sure like linchpin our biggest song we could never play it i want to be able to find a singer that could sing that song and we could play it live every night you know what i mean um it's a good time. yeah yeah i want to be able to give people the hits the songs that they paid money to see yeah yeah i think like i said my it's like you, you you've got an, enough experience in this world to make that call and the the potential in that vocal vacancy, just planting some fucking yeah. seeds to develop that. It's going to be, it's going to be yeah. really, really fun for the next few years to see how, well, see where it well moves. like I said, like I said earlier, you know, I was able to, I was able to find a couple of very talented guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, for divine heresy. Right. Who yeah. went on to do big things. Some of them went on to do big things and caused big things. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that, uh, well, I actually know that I've found some other really good talent. Now it's just a fact of getting in a room with these guys, you know, cause I do want to, before I make a decision, I want these guys to come down here, spend some time with us, see if I like them, see if we get along, mm-hmm. see how they, how they, if they're going to be too nervous yeah. on stage or singing in front of us, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. I'm excited. I'm very excited about this. So yeah. I can't so wait. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's going to be fucking awesome. Monty, obviously, so the band, oh, you're out of the band, Divine Harris is going on, but Monty's still got his hooks in you, in a way, because yes. he's, he's asked you to do, to captain the Rotary United uh, Well, before that? before that, the minute I was out of Fear Factory, the minute I was out, Monty's like, I want to pay you to do a demo. And I want you to find a band find a singer and I want you to do some more commercial stuff. Cause I know you can do that. So I wrote these handful of songs, got this singer and it sounded great, but Monty, you know, paid us, paid us money to do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rotor was pretty much supporting me. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were supporting me basically all this stuff. I was fucking right. I never knew this. That's so crazy. I wrote these, I, I wrote all these songs, but then I was like, Monty, I can't put this out. This is very commercial. And I just came off fucking Fear Factory. I got to write some heavy shit again. Mm-hmm. Right? Which which is when I started Divine Heresy. Yeah. Or the beginning of Divine Heresy, right? Mm-hmm. So then Monty's like, okay, I see, your, I see your thing, but I got this other idea. 
I am doing this thing called Road Runner All-Stars. Mm-hmm. And I want you to be a team captain. But I also want you to take that song that you wrote for me, that commercial rock band you were trying to start for me, that song that you did there. Okay. If you bring that song into this, mm-hmm. I will make it the single and I will get Matt Heafy, a new young, new young guy on the block <laughs> to sing that track. Mm-hmm. And I'll make it the first video and the first single. And I'm like, fuck, what a deal. Awesome. So I took it, took it, picked my team, recorded the songs. And the song was the end yeah. the song called the end, which is the only, I think it's the only video, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only know. videos. It was the only commercials. One only commercial. So, well, commercial E song. Right. Um, and uh, it was cool. It was really good. And Monty kept his promise and he loved the track. He loved what that was, track when I wrote it before. What was your initial reaction to the project itself? Cause it's a bit of a bold move, isn't it? I'm, we're going to celebrate the history of the label by basically trying to bring every, do, do a, a tribute album to ourselves effectively. I honestly think that it was Monty Connor and our ex-manager that, that was married to Colin that I had a falling out with. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we had become friends after sure. that. But um, she also helped Monty Connor too. Her name was Laura Porter. Mm-hmm. She helped Monty organize all that stuff. It's quite an undertaking. And uh, I think it- well, we were kind of like, I was kind of like the first guinea pig, right? Mm-hmm. The first guinea pig of it. Uh-huh. It was before anybody else started working on it. We, I was already jamming with Roy Muyorga, writing songs. Yeah. You know, we had Daz on our track, we had Kamira, uh, Mark Hunter, we had, you know, Paul Gray was here in LA, fucking writing some stuff with us. Andreas Kisser was here. And it was great. We had like our own little team, our own little band going on. And it was a good thing that we actually filmed some stuff ourselves because we were kind of the first guinea pigs. So by the time, by the time Monty was like, okay, we picked the other four captains. Let's get a film crew out there to film those bands, to film those, sorry, to film those recordings. Yeah. But we were, we already had finished everything. Wow. So well, we didn't right. get we didn't get that we didn't get the we didn't get the film crew coming down and filming us. Yeah, actually, you know what? You, now that you mention it, you are so in, we that, you're like, in the concert one a lot because you and Andreas well, pretty much hold the whole fucking thing together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing about it was is that um, we we were filming stuff ourselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh shit! Now we better document this. Yeah, because because Monty at the time they didn't really know the whole plan yet we were just kind of like i was like oh you want to write songs okay boom i pick my guys boom 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 boom. we were i worked really fast and we got things done right before they came up with the idea hey let's get a film crew and film all everybody else in the studio Mm -hmm. you know we were like kind of like went too fast and kind of got left behind (laughs) when it came to that but like i said we filmed stuff ourselves yeah so we had that footage right and um but when it came down to making the live show, right, and putting the band together that way, it was me, Andreas, that was really picking everything. Yeah. Me, Andreas, and Joy Jordanson. Mm-hmm. We were like the me, Andreas, Joy Jordanson, Paul Gray, and Adam Deuce were kind of like the team in LA, right? Kind of like the house band, and then 
everything house went band, exactly around that yeah the house band exactly but if you want to narrow it down it was pretty much me and andreas Okay, you play these 18 songs and then you you do these 18 songs. And then, you know what? I don't want to do that song. I don't want to, you do it. And then, and then Andreas would be like, okay, I got 19 songs or whatever. And then, and then it just kind of grew from there and we added more songs. I think at one point I had 19 songs and Andreas did 21 songs or something like that. It was something ridiculous like that. And um, yeah, but we were, the, we were the house band, me, Joey, uh, Andreas, Kisser, um, and Adam Deuce mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, with, um, Paul Gray as well. Yeah. So we were kind of like the house band and everybody was kind of switching guitars and switching all kinds of stuff. And um, we had, I had a blast doing it. We took about a month for rehearsals. So while, yeah. while we were rehearsing, different people would come in and rehearse their songs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was really cool. And while we were doing that, they were. They also brought in a film crew to document, like interviews, and us talking about what was going on. Kind of like a reality TV show, you know. Yeah, yeah. Drama happens, and then one person's talking about it. Some more drama happens, and this person talks. You know, what I mean, um, that's kind of like how we had it too. While we were, or me and Andreas would do different interviews or interviews together. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing this, and Andreas is doing that. And, you know, somebody's doing this, somebody's doing that, and they film it and stuff. And it was really cool. It was a really cool process. It was really cool to see how it all was put together. They, um, the roadrunner hired this one guy. I don't remember his name, but he was like basically the guy that oversaw everything, which is really cool. It was very well scheduled, very well planned and put together. But we definitely went out to go party a lot. We went out and partied after rehearsals during the day. We all went out and let loose and just ravaged Hollywood and had a blast. Do you have any um, favorite stories from the night of the gig, apart from Brian Frere throwing up everywhere? Well, the Roadrunner, Roadrunner made a mistake and they had open bar for everybody backstage, <laughs> you know, for the whole Roadrunner United crew. It was open bar. So people were, some people were getting wasted before the show. Shit. Which made for a fun night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one, dude, and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, Reflecting on the time with Roadrunner, would you have done anything differently? Knowing that you're now where you are now. The only thing that I would have ever liked to change would probably just the 360 deal. Mm-hmm. The bane of every musician's existence. Just just better percentage. Yeah. Just a better percentage. Mm-hmm. Love Roadrunner. Love everybody that worked there. They did a lot for us. Um, and we en- really enjoyed being on the label. Um, at that time, being on the label was a, a lot of credit. You know, people looked at you, oh, you're on Roadrunner. People thought Roadrunner was a major label. You know what I mean? But it wasn't until Nickelback came along where things started to change. A lot of their focus was on Nickelback. A lot of the bands, a lot of bands got dropped at that time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that point, I was pretty much already off the label. But I wasn't signed to the, signed to the label with anything, you know? So, um, uh, but I still saw a lot of things that went on there. You know what I mean? Um, but I wouldn't have changed anything other than just the fact, just the, the points on the, on the, on the contract, you know, on what our percentages were, because like I said, you know, even though we had that little taste of going to a bigger label like Interscope, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that wouldn't have been the right place for us, yeah. you know? Sometimes the grass isn't always greener on the other side. You don't know, you never know. I used to hear, 
I used to hear of bands all the time getting signed from independent labels and then going on to a major label and just not cutting it. Mm-hmm. And then boom, you're back to the smaller independent label. Or you whoever know, was championing maybe, them at the major, it just leaves on the Monday and the left eye and dry. Yes, that or just the band doesn't sell the records that they that they that the major label expected. You know, you two. Um, yeah. So, you know, so they get dropped for many different reasons, right? So maybe, maybe we wouldn't have been successful on the Interscope, right? And maybe they would have dropped us. Yeah. Right. So. To me, it was probably, I think it was better that we stayed with Bogunner. I mean, the other guys in the band could have a different perspective of what, how they felt about it. Yep. Um, as a matter of fact, I know that Bert wrote a, wrote a song about uh, Roadrunner on the record when he came back on the Archetype record. He called, wrote a song called Slave Labor. Oh, no. That's like, that's like a clause here in California. You know, yeah. after so many years, it's considered slave labor, right? Yeah, yeah. So I know that he wrote a song about it. So it's like, they obviously weren't too happy being there. And uh, I had, a, I had a different relationship. I had a different relationship with the people there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, they believed in me and I believed in them and I, and it worked out great. Yeah, totally. And so, well, so when we, when I was, when the band was off Roadrunner, uh, when I, and when I came back into the band, we actually signed I think Monty was still at Roadrunner at the time. We did a couple of records on, on Candlelight Records. Yep. Right? But then that folded, that went under. And the cool thing about it was is that at that point, Monty started his own imprint, Nuclear Blast. And so he's like, I'd love to sign the band. Let's do it. And so we did. We did Genexus. Mm-hmm. And now we've got the new record, Aggression Continual, coming out. And we licensed the other two records, uh, Mechanized, and the industrialist to nuclear blast as well. So you see that after the 2012 folding, um, oh, well, when it all goes under Warner, so many bands go straight from Roadrunner straight to Monty. And a machine head were well, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, you know, either, the way you make it sound is like, oh, you love Ford Runner, then boom, you're going to go with Monty. No. It's like Monty, well, you got to realize Monty had a really good relationship with these bands. People yeah. love, you know, the contribution that Monty, because Monty believes in them, right? Yep. So in a way, you want to go back to Monty. You know what I mean? Because you got somebody there who's on your side. Yeah, yeah, you know? totally. And he understands He understands the artist. So yeah, of course, you want to go back to Monty, but it was kind of more a mutual thing. Monty was seeking, Monty was seeking you as well, following your career. Hmm. Okay, they're with that label. Okay, they're off the label. I'm going to go get them. It smells blue. I'll give them a call. Say, hey, you want to come with me? You know, I'll take care of you. And he does. And he does. Yeah, well, well, thanks very much, man. He really sort of opened up a lot of like, interesting, a lot of my perspectives about the label, because obviously the entire project is to understand how Roadrunner did what it did. Because it was a special place. It did things which no other label has done since and never did at that point, especially for metal. So there's a, there's a lot of things, a lot of perspectives I need to sort of like reevaluate after hearing your side of it. Yeah, and it wasn't just it wasn't just necessarily the label doing things; it was the band doing things, and it was oh God, yeah. it was them picking the right bands for the label that were able to represent the label. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Bands like Type of Negative, Biohazard, Machine Head, Fear Factory. Come on, Sepultura. Come on. Yeah, those bands yeah. represented the label. I mean, I, 
I don't want to leave anybody out because there was a lot of bands. Because you got to think of Geocide, you know, a shit ton of bands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a very special place, a very interesting place. I've got to fi- I've got to figure it out for my generation. Otherwise, we'll be stuck with an oversaturated market. Thanks very much, mate. I'll uh, I'll all send right, this man. all out in August. All that shit. Cheers, you know. Have Thank a good you day. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.